Good morning, good morning. Good to see you. Joyce, uh, did you answer that phone call? Okay, all right, all right, good deal, good deal. All right, it is so good to see y'all. Um, it has been a couple of weeks since I have been here. Uh, in fact, uh, it's been three weeks since I have preached here. Uh, Howard preached for me the last Sunday I was in town. And then the last two Sundays, uh, my family and I were on a mission trip in Guatemala. And uh, we had a great time uh, for many different reasons. And one of the reasons we had a great time is because I am kidding you not that the temperature uh, did not break 70 degrees but one time while we were there. It was in the upper 60s, maybe 71 degrees. It was absolutely beautiful. So if you're ever looking for a chance to get out of the country, or out of the heat, I should say, go during the summer, go visit Guatemala, right outside the capital city, and you will have fabulous weather. It may be rainy, but it will be beautiful weather. Uh, we had a great time as we were able to go down there and serve at a camp. Uh, my son says the wrong name. The name of the camp is actually Guamiski, and it's designed to be a, mi a camp for missionary kids. Uh, and so we had kids there as well as teenagers there, and I had a, the privilege of working with them. It was the third time I've been down there to help lead that camp, and uh, Lana's been down there with me three times, and Carson's been a couple times. This time the whole family went. And it's really cool because right now, uh, as we got back from a mission trip in Guatemala, we have a group from our church, there are six of our uh, church members that are in Czech Republic right now on a mission trip there. And so uh, I hope that you'll be praying alongside of them as they're serving in Czech Republic in various ways. Um, I believe each day on our Facebook page, you'll be able to find ways that you can be praying for them, or at least periodically during the week. I know there was a posting today with some specific ways to pray for them today. And then as we will get towards the end of our service in a bit, we'll be praying over another group of people who are heading out on a mission trip this week. And on Saturday, I believe it is, we've got uh, some teenagers as well as adults going up to Mission Arlington to serve this week. And so we want to be praying for them as well. Uh, it is good to be here. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan Pittman. I'm the lead pastor and have the privilege of also being one of our uh, elders here at Living Hope. And, and, and I would love to have a chance to meet you after the service if we've not had the chance yet. Um, I hope that you've got a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair near you. Uh, we are, as a church family, uh, looking at the book of Psalms a little bit during this summer. Uh, if you are aware, we've been walking through the book of Acts uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, the majority of this year. We kind of pressed pause for seven or eight weeks, and we'll be looking at some of the Psalms. And then in July, we will resume back uh, by looking at the book of Acts again. But this morning, we'll be looking at, uh, sorry, we'll be looking at Psalms, verse 46. And if you uh, have a worship guide with you when you came in, there's a place where you can take notes as we walk along. So we'll be in Psalm 46 this morning. Never in my life, uh, especially when I was in middle school and high school, or even college, well, yeah, I guess college I would have, but middle school and high school, never in my life would I have thought that I would ever be teaching on the topic of poetry. I remember sitting in some of my middle school literature classes thinking, I don't like literature. I don't like poetry. I just read the thing and it says what it says and I don't want to look behind any meanings behind the words. And then yet as a pastor, I have the opportunity on occasion to actually preach through and preach on uh, some, some poetry. 
If you're unaware of this, the book of Psalms is a collection of poems or a collection of songs that were written by real people talking about real life circumstances. Their personality shows up. Their feelings and emotions show up. They use flower, flowery language at times to describe circumstances. And all of it is designed to get our eyes on God and to worship him. And so that's what we're seeking to do this morning. As we look at Psalm 46, we're going to see what the psalmist has to say to us about who God is. One thing you'll notice about all of the psalms is that they are real, they are authentic, they are raw, they are honest, where the psalmist will lay on the table his heart. And at times it is, God, I'm crying out to you and you aren't answering. At times it's, I feel like I'm being defeated and I don't know what to do. At times it's simply praising God for who he is. But all uh, very many uh, of the Psalms are, are written in a way that they are describing how they feel like God's not doing what they thought he would do. And then it, towards the end of the Psalm, it turns the corner and then it's like, oh, wait a minute, God is providing. Well, in this Psalm, in Psalm 46, it's a little bit different. As we read through Psalm 46, there is really no doubt whatsoever in the psalmist. He is confident from verse 1 to the end, which is verse 11. As you walk through this entire psalm, you'll see over and over again, there is no doubt in his mind that God is victorious. He maintains confidence throughout this whole psalm. And so my encouragement to us this morning, wherever you may find yourself, wherever life is taking you, whether it's been a good week or a crummy week, that God is faithful, God is good, and we can trust him. This morning, we've sung a lot of, uh, of songs that really tie into the themes that are going to be found in Psalm 46. That we have a God who is victorious, and we can trust him. He loves us, and he is good. If we will place our faith and our trust in God, then we're going to see that he is with us. In fact, you'll notice on sermon notes that the title for this message is The Lord of Hosts is With Us. We're going to look at Psalm 46 now. You're going to see that phrase, the Lord of Hosts, twice. And we're going to discuss in a minute what that even means. Here's what it says in Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is an incredible psalm. One of the one of my favorite psalms that, that we find in Scripture. It's an incredible psalm that has uh, been the inspiration of a very powerful hymn. Perhaps you're familiar with this hymn. It's been around for 500 years. Have you heard of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? A man by the name of Martin Luther wrote it almost 500 years ago. It was about 495 years ago. And I wanted to read to you the first verse of that, of that hymn. And maybe today, if you don't know that hymn or haven't sung it in a while, maybe you'll take a moment to, to, to get on Google and, and, and find it this morning. I'm not going to read all four verses, but here's the first one. Here's what Martin Luther put in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. I know that that has uh, been a very popular song through the years. A, a faithful hymn through the years. In fact, some of my memories of singing that song involves being in, in, in a crowd of over five or 10,000 men as I was a part of a few Promise Keepers events and men standing and singing boldly and loudly the fact that our God is a mighty fortress. Our God is our refuge. Don't just sit on those words. Like, think about the concept that our God is so powerful and so great that he is a refuge from the storms of life and everything that Satan may throw our way. Life is never easy. Life is always difficult. However, we can sing with Martin Luther, we can sing with the psalmist of, of Psalm 46 that our God is with us, our God is strong, our God is faithful, our God is a refuge and a strength and a very present help in a time of trouble. Anybody in this room had an experience lately that felt like a time of trouble? Or am I the only one in the room that has experienced that? May this psalm bring great comfort to us, not because it's the words written by a psalmist, but rather they are the words about a God that we can trust. That we can take comfort and peace and security in. Psalm 46 can be broken up in various ways, and I think the best way to break it into uh, different pieces is to look at three different stanzas, if you will. I, I know that last week David preached, and he mentioned the word Selah, and I, I read it three different times this morning. You'll see it at the end of verse uh, 4, sorry, verse 3, at the end of verse 7, and the end of verse 11. And the word sailor just means pause or, or reflect or, 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 or kind of a, an act of division. So in some ways, this morning, I want us to look at three different stanzas of Psalm 46 and use the word sailor as the dividing lines, if you will. 
And in each of these sections, the psalmist uses vivid word pictures to describe who God is and how we can and we should trust him. It all begins in verse 1. And in verse 1, it sets the tone for the entire psalm. Listen to the words again. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is a very present help in trouble. He sets the tone here. There's three different aspects we see in verse 1 about who God is, right? The first thing we see is that he's our refuge. The second thing we see is that he's our strength. And the third thing we see is that he's our very present help. So let's look at each of those words briefly, individually. The word refuge. A refuge is a place we go for protection, a place we go for safety. It's a a place that, that provides the shelter from the storms of life. So God is our defense. He protects us. Not only is God our defense or our protection, God is also our strength. And when I think of that word strength, I think of the offense, that that God is on the offensive. He fights for us, and we'll see that theme throughout some of these other verses. So not only does he defend us, he also fights for us. And then the last phrase we see in verse 1 is that he's a very present help. In other words, God is with us. This morning, as you reflect on the truth of God's word here, as you think about your own life, I want us to see that God is protecting us, God is fighting for us, and God is with us in all of it. So let's kind of look at each stanza now. The first three verses, you'll see on your notes, show us that God is our refuge in the chaos of life. God is our refuge in the chaos of life. And then in the next couple of verses, the psalmist begins to describe some of that chaos. Look at verse 2. He says, based on the fact that God is our refuge, our strength, the very present help in trouble, in verse 2, therefore we will not fear. I know you've heard this from me in the past and probably other pastors as well. Whenever you find the word therefore in Scripture, you want to figure out what it's there for, right? Like, what is everything that's going to follow after the word therefore, what's it based upon? It's based upon the simple fact, the simple truth, the powerful truth that verse 1 says, that God is our refuge, our strength, and a very present help. And because of that, verse 2 says, we will not fear. I love that verse. There are places in Scripture, in the Psalms, and in the Gospels, where we see people kind of wavering. They believe, but they need help with their unbelief. And that's going to happen to us, yes. But I love the fact that this particular Psalm is all about confidence. It doesn't say, I hope I won't fear, or I shouldn't fear. It says, because of who God is, we will not fear. What's going on in your life? Are there things that you are afraid of? Are you fearful of things? I'm not going to come down on you, but I am going to say that if you're a child of God, based on who he is, as we see in verse 1, the order, the command, the reality is that we will not fear. And why is that? Because God is our refuge in the chaos of life. And then in verses 2 and 3, 
He says we won't fear even though certain things are happening. He lists four different things with the word though. In the ESV, he says, I will, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What we have here is a vivid word picture of various cataclysmic natural disasters happening, the worst that nature could throw at us, the idea of an earthquake. We were in Guatemala this past week, and apparently there was an earthquake while we were there. I've been there three times. I've felt one earthquake, and apparently we had one while I was there. But the reality is that earthquakes happen in various places over the world. And can you imagine the idea of the earth trembling under our feet, the earthquake? And then he says that the mountains will tumble into the sea. There'll be tidal waves. There'll be trembling mountains. He describes just a chaotic natural order around us. He's not necessarily mentioning one particular event. Rather, what he's describing is a general sense of the instability and insecurity of this life. Can you imagine being there and experiencing the things that the psalm says here about the earth giving way, the mountains being moved into the sea, the waters roaring? It made me think, if you think that H-E-B is chaotic on the day that snow is coming into town while everyone's there to get their bread, their milk, and their eggs, can you imagine if a real disaster like what we just described is taking place? Perhaps in your life, hopefully in your life, you'll never experience those kinds of natural disasters. But when I read this psalm, I don't just read and go, oh, okay. If there's ever a natural disaster, God is with me. He's my refuge. Rather, when I read this psalm, I go, you know what? Sometimes life is so hard that it literally feels like my world is crashing in on me and tumbling down around me. The earth is shaking because my life is experiencing so much difficulty at this moment. I don't know how I can move on. It's in those moments that we see that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, that God is our help. There's all kinds of reasons that chaos enters our life. There's all kinds of reasons that confusion enters our life. There's so many reasons why insecurity at times will enter into our lives. I've jotted down a few of these things. Perhaps you could add to that list. But some of the things that will cause us to feel like our world is crashing in around us could be broken relationships. That could be marriage or it could be your kids or your parents or it could be friendships or or coworkers or, or business partners, but broken relationships could be financial problems like where am I going to find the next penny to pay towards my bill I don't know how to do it everything is mounting up and breaking me down could be an illness that you're going through I know we've got church members that are dealing with illness for themselves and their loved ones and it's just hard to walk through these waters together could be the death of someone and you're grieving you're mourning their loss Could be difficult decisions that you need to make. Could be anxiety for various reasons. But for so many different reasons, life just sometimes is hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it just feels like it's piling on and piling on and piling on. And everything is crumbling and falling apart. Whenever we think of mountains, especially back then, 
when they thought of mountains, it would be seen as a, as a place of stability or strength. And yet, the psalmist says, at times, the mountains will be taken and moved into the sea. The sea was seen as anything but stable. Like, you didn't get on a boat and go across the sea and survive. You would get on the sea and you would die because of natural disasters and, 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 and things of, of, of lack of technology. And so he's saying that the very things that at times feel stable are actually instable in life. But yet, in the midst of all of this, I don't paint this picture so that we walk out and go, you know what, life is hard. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm crippled. I'm, I'm dealing with just the pain and the agony of these difficulties that you've described, Alan. I don't want us to walk out with that. Rather, I want us to walk out knowing that in spite of, regardless of, in place of looking at that, instead of being fearful, we have confidence because God is our refuge. You see, our refuge is not based on what's happening around us. Our refuge is based on who God is. Made me think of a poster from the 90s. I don't know if you remember the motivational posters or not, but this picture that's about to go on the screen is the poster related to the word courage. Uh, I can't really read all the words below. It's less about the words on the saying on the poster, and it's more about what's taking place. Do you remember seeing this picture from the 90s? Do you see the guy that's right in the doorway of that lighthouse? Would you say there might be a wave or two coming around him? And yet, it appears, I don't know for a fact, but it appears that he's just chilling right there. Like he's comfortable right there. Why? I, I get it. Like the waves could be strong enough to knock that over. But for the most part, he feels like, okay, this lighthouse ain't going anywhere, and it doesn't matter what's crashing around me. I'm on the backside of it. I'm okay. I'm safe because I'm in my refuge. How much more so is God our refuge when the waves are crashing around us? I'm not making light of anything that any of us are facing in this room today. There may be legitimate reasons why you're concerned, you're worried, you're anxious. But in the midst of it, let's not be worried or anxious because we have a God who's our refuge. He's our safe place. Therefore, we will not fear even when the storms of life are raging around us. Got a couple of things in my notes here that I want to share with you. There may be some reasons why we as a church family might at times be fearful or concerned. There may be some reasons why as your pastor that if I'm not careful, I can forget that God is my refuge, our refuge, and I can be fearful or concerned. Can I share with you a couple of those reasons? You're like, I don't know if I want to hear it or not, Alan. Maybe I'd be better not hearing it. Share. Many of you are probably aware of the first, and some of you may be aware of the second, so here they are. Here's the first one. The last year has been difficult, not only in our church family, but many church families. And one of the reasons that life has been difficult and one of the results of life being difficult is this. While God is blessing us here, while God is bringing new people here, while God is doing great things here, the reality is that we have had some of our church members that have left our church family over the last year. Some of them have moved out of town. 
Others of them are still in town, but they've chosen to participate in another church locally here in town. And that can be hard on us. Like, we can be saying, why is that? They are dear friends of ours. We miss them. We wish they were back here. We may even have questions. We may even be upset about it or upset at them or upset at ourselves or saying, hey, if we had done something differently. But the reality is God is still in charge. God is still with us. It doesn't negate the pain. It doesn't negate the sadness. But in the midst of it all, we know that our God is still on his throne, is he not? The second thing, perhaps because of some families that have left, and most definitely because of financial stuff related to the economy, related to inflation and things like that, while our spending at church has not risen, our given, giving has declined from last year. And so as a result of that, we have spent nearly $50,000 more than we have received so far this year. We are seeking to be faithful stewards with what God has given to us. We have some money in the bank that we're able to utilize. However, Whenever you spend more money than you bring in, and I'm not making it about a business transaction, I'm just talking the fear level, then if you're not careful, that's a very bad thing. And it can be very fearful. But here's what I know, and here's what I believe. God is still on his throne. And though our giving has been down some, God's not unaware of that. And though our giving has been down some, God is not incapable of resolving that. This is a whole other story altogether, but let me just throw this out at you. And how I know that God is faithful. I started serving as a pastor of a church over a decade ago. And unbeknownst to me, that church had been delinquent on many of its bills. The previous pastor, for various reasons, had not given money to the IRS. That's never a good thing. For reasons unknown to me, he had failed to pay the place where we were renting the facility to have church. Unbeknownst to me, he owed money to some advertising agencies and things like that. Let me just put it this way. We owed the government $50,000. We owed other people about $60,000, so to the tune of $110,000, we owed different people. Our church was running barely over 100 people. Our church may have had $15,000 in the bank, but I will tell you to this day that our God showed up in a big way, and we paid off all of that debt in less than a year. Why is that? Because it's not about finances. It's not about, hey, Alan just said we don't have enough money coming in, so we need to start giving more. No, the reality is this, that God has called us as followers of Jesus to be faithful with our stewardship, with our finances, not just with what we give to the church, but also with what we spend on ourselves and our lives. And the reality is if we're the followers of Jesus, they're following what he wants us to do. If we're being faithful in our discipleship of who Jesus is, then he provides for us. And he leads us to give accordingly. So in the midst of this, here's what I'm going to say. 
While God is our refuge, God is our protection, God is providing for us in the midst of seeing some folks that we love dearly not uh, worship here any longer, while we miss them, while we're sad about that, while we're not meeting our, our budget needs right this moment, the reality is he will provide and we have a role to play as well, right? So I'm calling you as our church family. Would you pray with us? Would you pray boldly and confidently knowing that God is providing for us? That just as he's drawing new people in our church family, he will continue to do that. Just as he's continuing to provide for us financially, he'll continue to do that and he'll warm that up a little bit and we'll see him provide in ways that we could never have imagined. When it comes to participation in our church family, would you consider how you can pray and invite people and invite them to be a part of our church family? How when they come, would you greet them and welcome them and receive them? That when they join the church, that you would include them in the church and get them involved and get them connected and get them plugged in? And then as it relates to giving, would you pray about how God would have you give? You consider, how am I giving and is God calling me to do something differently? Just so you know, as your pastor, I don't know what anybody in our church family gives except for the Pittman household. So I don't know whether you're tithing or whether you're not. I don't know whether you're giving sacrificially or if you're not. I have no clue whatsoever, but I know this, that God is calling all of us that are followers of Jesus to be faithful with our giving, to be generous with our giving, and to begin to respond to him in a way that it's less about meeting the needs of the church and it's all about ministry being taken care of so that we can share the gospel with those that are around the world. So let me say one more thing as it relates to giving, and that is this. Here at our church, we believe that Scripture teaches, both in the Old Testament and the, in the New Testament, the principle of the tithe. That God calls us to give 10% of our income to our local church. And I'm asking you, if you are a member of this church family, are you tithing? And if not, would you begin to be obedient to what God's calling you to do? And if you already are giving, are you giving sacrificially and is God calling you to do something in addition to that? The reason I shared all that is this. Whenever I read verses 1 through 3, whenever I see that God is our refuge and our strength, he's a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though this, though that. I share with you a couple of those in my life that if I'm not careful, I will not trust God. But the reality is this, he is a great and mighty God. He is victorious, and as we see at the end of this psalm, his name will be proclaimed throughout the world, right? All right, let's keep going, let's keep going. The next thing I want us to see is this, stanza two, verses four through seven, we find peace in his presence. We find peace in his presence. So verses one through three talk about chaos. Look how he turns the corner in verse four. He says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here's what he does. He says, you've seen in the first few verses how natural things can be disastrous, such as the water roaring and foaming. And then he turns the corner in verse 4 and he says, but there is a peace, tranquil river that flows through the city of God. What's the city of God? 
When the psalmist wrote this and the people read this, they would think of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was seen as the city of God, a reference to the place where God dwelled in his, in his temple. And what he's saying is that instead of the roaring, foaming water that is there, there's a nurturing river flowing in the presence of God. I've been to Jerusalem. There is no river in Jerusalem. In fact, there's very little water in Jerusalem. And so why is the psalmist talking about a river flowing through Jerusalem? The reality is he's not talking about a literal river. Rather, he's talking about a figurative river which points to the endless stream of God's provision and God's sustenance. So I read that this week. I thought of three different places in the scripture that references a river. I'm not going to take the time to go there and read the verses this morning, but maybe you would want to jot them down. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, we read about the Garden of Eden. Perhaps you remember the story of the Garden of Eden where God created everything to begin with. Do you remember it talks about the rivers that flowed through and around the Garden that river would provide the things that that created, uh, newly created place would need to thrive and to survive. And then maybe you're familiar with this passage, Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision from the Lord, and the vision is that there's a river that's flowing out from the temple, and everywhere that water goes and everywhere that water touches, there is vibrancy and life and thriving. And just as the Bible begins with the river, it ends with the river. Maybe you remember Revelation chapter 2. Uh, sorry, 22. And in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, there in heaven, we see that there is a river flowing through heaven. All of these word pictures of a river points to the fact that God provides for his people. That in his presence, there is everything that we need. I, I love how this second stanza contrasts with the first stanza. I've already made reference to the fact that, that, that it's different from the chaos that we find in the first stanza. And there's peaceful tranquil, tranquility in this stanza. But also I want to point out a couple of verses. Look in verse 5. He's saying that the city of God will not be moved in verse 5. The word moved there is the same word that we see in verse 2 when it's talking about the mountains being moved into the sea. And it says that where, where God's presence is not fully experienced, there's chaos. But where God's presence is fully experienced, there is peacefulness and there is not movement. There is stability. There is peace. There is tranquility regardless of brewing chaos around us. The thing you need to see about the strength of the city of God is not its fortifications, it's not its walls, it's not how it's built. Rather, the strength of the city of God is the presence of God. Whenever we are in the presence of God, we experience his peace and we experience his strength. If you'll look at verses 2 and, uh, I mean, sorry, verse, uh, let's see. In verse um, 6, 
talks about the, the kingdoms tottering. It, it talks about the nations raging. Some of those words, the rage and totter, are some of the same words we find in verses 2 and 3 when it talks about the water roaring or the mountains being moved. It's saying that in God, in the presence of God, all is made right. And then we see at the end of verse 6, when he's addressing or discussing the kingdoms of this world, it says in verse 6, he utters, God utters his voice, and the earth melts. When God speaks, everything pays attention because God has always been in control, and God still is in control. We can experience the peace of God when we are in his presence. So the city of God. Yes, when it was written, it was mainly pointing towards Jerusalem. But in reality, it's also pointing to the city of God that's in heaven that we'll experience one day. And the reality is that here on this earth, we have bits and pieces where we experience the presence of God. And the reality is that when we are in his presence, even though we're not fully in his presence like we will be in heaven, there is peace and there is comfort and there is guidance. I love the refrain that we find two different places. Verses 7 and 11. It finishes the second stanza and the third stanza. It says the same thing. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What's the deal with the word hosts here? Depending on your translation, it may say something else. It may even say the word armies there. The word host carries with it a, a military connotation or an army. And it's saying that God is the Lord of an army and he is in charge. When it says the Lord of hosts, it is a way to say the warrior king. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, is a warrior king. He's in charge of his army. And when he leads into battle, he's always victorious. And because he's victorious, this is why we have peace when we're with him. In verse 7, when it says the Lord of hosts is with us, it makes me think of another word that we see in Scripture, the word Emmanuel. Do you remember the word Emmanuel? Emmanuel is another name for Jesus. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? It means God is with us. So if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, he resides within you. His Holy Spirit resides within you, and he is with you. And if Jesus is with you, then no, regardless of what life throws at you, you have perfect peace. Let's look at the third stanza. On your notes, you'll see that we're to proclaim his reign among the nations. Verses 8 through 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In this section, the psalmist unpacks for us 
how the Lord of hosts interacts with the nations. It says that the nations have tottered, the nations have raged, the, the nations have been at war. It's this picture that the nations or the people or the world, not nations as in Russia and China and the United States and Guatemala, but the peoples of this world, when it says nations, the peoples of this world have come into the presence of God and they've fought against him and they have lost the war. The psalmist invites us in verse 8. He says, come and see. Come and see all that God has done. And he lists the things in verses 8 and 9 that God has done in his battle against the nations or against the people. Look at the second part of verse 8. It says that our God has brought needed desolations or des destructions. In other words, he has defeated the hostile nations. And then in verse 9, he, or at the end, yeah, verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, it says that he brings an end to the war. He wins all battles. The end of verse 9, it says that he shatters bows, he shatters spears, he burns chariots, he overcomes all attacks. Basically what he's saying is this, the nations or the people think they're in charge, but they aren't. God is completely in control. He is king. He is Lord. He is Savior. Then we have verse 10. Verse 10 is what I like to refer to sometimes as a, a, a Christian mug verse. Perhaps you even have a mug at the house that says, Be still and know that I am God. Perhaps you have a poster, kind of like the Courage poster on your wall. And I'm not making a knock against it, but the reality is all too often we take sound bites from Scripture and whenever we take those and we put them on a mug, maybe we don't really see the full context of what's being said here. The first problem we have sometimes when we quote Psalm 46 verse 10 is we don't quote the whole verse. We just quote verse 10. We don't even know the second part of verse 10 is there that says, be still and know that I'm God. And why? So that I will be exalted among the nations. So that I'll be exalted in the earth. And the interesting thing about this verse is this. I didn't even realize it until this week while I was studying. More than likely, the words be still and know that I am God are not written to the people of God. Rather, be still and know that I am God are actually written to the warring, hostile nations that are warring against God. I mean, prior to verse 10, we see the confidence of God's people. So there's no need really for the psalmist to remind God's people to be still and know that he's God because they already got that covered. Also, prior to verse nine, uh, 10, we see him referencing the nations raging and tottering, the nations uh, bringing war against God. And it's in this moment that God seems to speak, there's quotation marks around it, and he seems to speak directly to those who are battling against him. He's saying, stop trying to think that you're in charge. Stop, cease, stop fighting. Be still and know that I am God. See, the peoples, the nations, those warring against God were promoting chaos. And they needed to be rebuked. And so God in this moment rebukes them and says, stop fighting against me. 
he's telling us, he's telling them to acknowledge that he is God. And they are not. He's telling them to acknowledge that he is king and they are not. And because he is king, because he is sovereign, because he's in charge, because he's in control, because of that, he says at the end of verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What he's saying is that the world will see and the world will know that he is God. Doesn't mean that the entire world will respond and obey and and submit to his leadership, but the world cannot deny that he is God. So how's he going to be exalted? Well, he's exalted by the verses that we've just read, where he breaks the bows, he breaks the spears, he burns the chariots, he puts an end to the wars. Our God is a victorious king, and because he's victorious king, he is exalted or lifted up. Another way that he is exalted is by our words, by our proclamation. The very point that I'm making with this whole stanza that says, proclaim his reign among the nations. We are to go out and to tell the peoples of this world that he is God, and he is the one that we should follow. You don't have to go to Guatemala to tell others about Jesus, although that's a good thing to do. You don't have to go to Czech Republic to tell others about Jesus, but it's good if you do. You don't have to go to Mission Arlington to tell others about Jesus, but it's good if you do. But the reality is wherever we go in our world, we are to tell others that God is to be worshipped and adored. Here at College Station, the nations are coming to us. They're in our backyard. They are researchers. They are students. They are professional people that live in our community. And the reality is if we would share the gospel to them, it's very likely that they will in turn go and share the gospel to those in their nations around the world. But all too often we're fighting against God, doing our own thing, thinking we're in charge. But the reality is that God says, stop fighting against me, be still and know that I'm God. Exalt me among the nations. We started by looking at the first stanza. They kind of walked through the chaos and craziness of this world. We concluded by saying that God is a place of refuge, he's a place of strength, he's a place of peace, and that we're to proclaim him to the nations. And perhaps you're asking the question, well, how can I proclaim him to the nations? There's all kinds of tools out there that we can utilize. One of these tools is called the three circles, and I've got it on the screen here, that can be used to share the gospel. It doesn't have to be drawn this way. It doesn't have to be used exactly this way. And perhaps you've heard David or others talk about this this approach. But you can see the three circles that are drawn here. And I wanted to start with the one that says brokenness. You see it's kind of got these lines in it and everything. The reality is that we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is full of chaos. We live in a world that's described just like we find in the first couple of verses of Psalm 46. That is falling down around us. It's chaos. It's 
craziness. It's broken. And why is this world broken? Why is this world in chaos? We can see right there between the left and the right there the word sin. Even though God, in that first circle, designed this world perfectly, he designed it for us to be in relationship with him, chaos and brokenness entered because of that three-letter word, word, and that is the word sin. Why is our world broken? Why is our world chaotic? Why is our world fallen? Because we didn't follow God's perfect plan. We let sin enter into the equation, and we are broken. And because of our sin, because of our brokenness, let's leave that up there for a moment. Because of our sin, because of our brokenness, then we, uh, then we are separated eternally from a loving, good God. But the good news is this, that he's provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. And we see that in that bottom circle there with Jesus. You see the arrows pointing up and down and all of that. The reality is that Jesus came to this earth and he lived on this earth and he lived and he died on a cross for our sins that he took upon himself our punishment and our sin, that he was raised on the third day. And the reality is that if we'll trust in him, if we'll believe in him, if we'll confess, if we'll repent, then we can be made right with God. You can see above the word Jesus, there's a a crown there, right? Because he is king, he is in charge. The reason this world is broken is because this world refuses to acknowledge that he is king. And in our own lives, whenever we refuse to acknowledge that, we'll experience the brokenness and chaos of this life. And then once we've trusted in Jesus, we can see that we can follow him, we can obey him, we can grow and transform. And then the reality is we don't just stay there in that perfect design, but we go. You see that dotted line across the middle? We go to a broken, chaotic world to share the hope of Jesus Christ. And so in many ways, I think this picture describes what's taking place in Psalm 46, that this world is broken and chaotic because we've refused to acknowledge that Jesus is king. But when we do acknowledge that he is king, we can be made right with God and we can go out and point others to him. We can go out and do what the end of verse 10 says and exalt him among the nations, exalt him in the earth. So my question for you is, have you trusted in Jesus as your king, as your savior, as your Lord? If you haven't, would today be the day that you trust in him? And if you have trusted in him, then you can have confidence, the confidence that the psalm writer in Psalm 46 has. I have three different questions I want to ask you this morning based on what we've looked at this morning. If you don't mind, would you jot them down? Would you think through the questions? And I'd rather you not just say yes, no. I'd rather you kind of unpack it, think through it, and process it a bit. And here's the first question. Are you trusting God? Or are you warring against him? says that the nations were warring against him. And when they did, there's chaos and confusion. But when we trust in him, there's lack of chaos and confusion. There's peace. So the question is, are you trusting God or are you warring against him? And maybe you can unpack that a bit by saying, in what ways am I warring against him? In what ways am I fighting against him? In what ways am I trying to stay on the throne instead of allowing him to be on the throne? In other words, are you acknowledging his reign and rule in your life? That's the first question. The second one is this. Are you living life aware of his presence? Or are you living in fear? You see, there's peace when we live in his presence. There's fear and worries and anxiety and confusion when we don't. 
Some of us in this room, we are followers of Jesus, but we're living as if we're not in the presence of God, and we are broken and confused. Part of the problem why we aren't living in the reality of the presence of God is because we're not spending time with him. We're not reading scripture. We're not studying it. We're not meditating on it. We're not memorizing scripture. We're not spending time with other believers that are holding us accountable. We're not investing in our spiritual walk with Jesus. The only time we really do is when we're at a church function and the rest of the week our Bibles are dusty because we're not spending time with God. If we spend time with God, then we'll be aware of his presence. And if we're aware of his presence, we won't live in fear. I didn't say difficult times won't come. I'm saying we won't live in fear. The third question is this. Are you living in community? Did you notice that all throughout this psalm, the psalmist doesn't say I, I, I. Throughout this psalm, he says we, our, us. This is a community psalm that he writes. He says we will not fear. He doesn't say I will not fear. It's a community effort. That's because we need each other. Here at Living Hope, we're a church family. Hear me say this. We are a church family. We're not simply people that walk into the same room on a Sunday morning to attend a worship service together, and we all experience the same thing, and we walk out and do our thing. No, we're called to be a church family. We need each other. Why has the last two years been so hard? Because for various reasons, because of the pandemic, because of choices we've made, because of our own laziness, because of whatever, we've not stayed connected to each other. It's time that we're a church family together and love and serve and be with one another. That's why we have hope groups. Why do we have hope groups? So we can do life together. Here's the deal. I want to see 100% of our church members plugged into a hope group in the fall. Would you make that commitment that you will do what it takes to plug into a hope group in the fall? If transportation is an issue, let us know. We'll get you there. If the day of the week of our hope groups that are being offered is an issue, let us know and we'll try to have an additional day of the week plan. But we want to see 100% of our people plugged into a hope group. Because God has made us to be in community. It's also why we're having family meals. Have you seen that we've announced we're doing some family meals? We're doing one this coming week. We're going to do a couple more through the course of the year. Uh, The deacon, specifically Trooper, has done a great job of organizing and putting this thing together. And I may cause a panic in Trooper for just a moment, but here's the deal. If you haven't signed up for a, a family meal this week, You can do that today before you dismiss. You can't call the church after today and try to do it. But this morning, if you're in this room or you're online, send me an email. If you know Trooper Kruger, stop him in the hallway whenever we dismiss. If you don't know Trooper, find me and I'll point you to him. We want to see more of our families doing a family meal. Why? So we can be a community together. Also being a community together is why we offer membership classes. If you're attending here but you've never joined the church, make that decision. Join the church. God's calling you to this church family. You've been here for weeks. You've been here for months. Maybe you've even been here for years. Pull the trigger. Plug in. Be a part of our church family. 
We have a church membership class that's coming up in a couple of weeks, July 17th. We need each other. As I finish this morning, you're like, dude, I thought you finished. I almost did. This idea of a community. Whenever we're a covenant community together, a covenant community always responds with confidence in God. A covenant community never responds in fear. When we're doing this together, we live out what it says in Psalm 46, 1 and 2. God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we, church family, therefore, we, living hope, therefore, we will not fear. Let's do this together. Let's remember the recurring theme in verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. As a church family, let's go out. Let's be disciples. Let's make disciples. Let's be the church. Let's do it to the glory of God. God's wired us together. And if we do this in his presence, with his direction, as a church family, then we walk in confidence of who God is and we don't walk in fear. Guys, it's time for us to stop walking in fear. You're like, Alan, I haven't been walking in fear. That's my neighbor. I don't walk in fear. No, I guarantee you, 100% of us are walking in fear in some aspect of our life. It's time to stop. It's time to trust in Jesus, the Lord of hosts who's with us. If you've not placed your faith and trust in him this morning, come see me. Let's talk about it. If you're fearful and you're a follower of Jesus, let's come and pray at the altar. Let's do business with God this morning and allow him to do business with us. I'm going to lead us in prayer. After the prayer is over with, some guys are going to be passing some offering plates. You can drop your offering there. You can drop your connection card there. And then whenever I say, man, we're going to sing a song or two. And as we do, we're going to actually sing a song that's based on Psalm 46. We're going to sing another song as well. And as we do that, would you come and pray with me? Would you come and pray at this altar? Would you commit your life to God first and foremost and to this church family as well? Would you say yes to God, trusting in him, having no fear because of who he is, not because of your self-motivation, but because of who he is, taking confidence in his refuge, his protection, and his very present in time of help. Let's pray.